Welcome to Tactically Acquired. Our goal is to document military-connected living history in a fun and easy environment. We will capture the stories of our active duty, guard, reservists, veterans, ROTC, and their families, sharing their stories, adventures, and journeys across the military life cycle. The podcast is for anyone interested in joining the military, has been part of the military, or wishes to learn more about military life. In addition, we want to bridge the growing military-civilian divide through education. This is unfiltered, meaning we'll go over the good, the bad, and yes, maybe even the ugly of being a military-connected individual. I'm your host, Rusty Martis, a retired Air Force Mustang and OEF veteran, and I run the Veterans Resource Station at North Kentucky University. Welcome to another edition of Tackley Acquired. Now, on this episode is the final episode with Dr. Tom Eagles. Again, fortunate enough to have our producer, Professor Kevin Eagles, here with us. Man, I I just gotta say, wow! <laughs> you know that first episode was really awesome, and then we get into the second episode with some amazing stories. He really gets in depth um, with some of his time in Vietnam, and then of course we go into this final piece of the story. Do you have any kind of last thoughts as we get into it? Yeah, I wanted to take an opportunity to thank you and the Veterans Resource Station here at NKU uh, to allow this to happen. Um, as I said previously, right, this, this episode or this oral history had been sitting in a desk, uh, since my father's passing in June of 2016. And with these episodes airing, uh, it is going to be the first time for several family members to actually listen to this oral history. Uh, when my father was alive, he hadn't told anyone except my mom who was in the interview, mm-hmm. um, that he was doing it. So it was kind of a surprise. And I know that I already have a few aunts and uncles on my mother's side um, who have listened to it. And it is my hope that my father's, uh, one of his best friends, uh, certainly from the war, uh, who he had kept contact with his whole life, uh, a gentleman by the name of Aubrey Nab, uh, will get a chance to listen to this as well. Um, as I said, you know, my father passed in June of uh, 2016, uh, but... Aubrey is still alive and well, and um, I hope that he'll have the opportunity to listen to this. Um, yeah, it's just, you know, thinking about Mr. Nab, um, after my father had passed, he had helped my mom um, navigate the Veterans Administration to make sure he got paid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and two, I wanted to point out as well is that, you know, uh, during the war, my father and Mr. Nab were part of the same village assistance team. And one day, uh, Mr. Nab was just walking down the village street when a, uh, a North Vietnamese infiltrator had come into the village and tried to execute Aubrey by shooting him in the heart. Wow. Uh, luckily, he missed and just grazed his heart. And my father was able to get there in time to save him. And uh, I, I think that part of my father giving this oral history was uh, for the eventual benefit of Mr. Nab to to, to, to memorialize, you know, their experiences in the war. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, one of the reasons we started this podcast was to really share these living histories because everybody has a story to tell. But when you start talking about some of the Vietnam vets and you get into some of these combat stories and war stories, America, Many of them don't have a clue about what happened and what's going on. And this is just a great avenue to help share and, 
you know, showcase those stories, the good, the bad, and the ugly, as we said, right? right? And f- for others to enjoy them as well or learn from them, I should say. Right. No, that's, if I can take a moment to mm-hmm. valorize the show, and that is that uh, it is so important for the the general public, right, and for the student body here at the university to to understand through the lives and experiences of our student service members and veterans uh, what they went through and what this country does for their benefit every day. I, I think that all too often we civilians – uh, we tend to forget uh, the sacrifices that are happening around us every single day and that your show by highlighting and valorizing and memorializing that is is super important. And I'm really not only happy, but very proud to be a part of that. Well, we thank you for all you do and especially as a producer and setting this up and getting everything <laughs> squared away and, and working the behind the scenes activities in a lot of ways. Um, but that's, you know, to your point, most we know that there's a, a big and growing uh, military civilian divide because we don't need as many military as we did back, you know, in the day of World War One, World War Two, mm. and it continues to shrink and shrink and shrink. Mm. And a lot of times, as that occurs, a lot of uh, I'll just say less attention is paid to those sacrifices that are from the military and the veterans and their family members that went through. So sharing the stories is a true honor and your dad and everything he accomplished during the time when America, quite frankly, a lot of folks, um, they didn't get the welcome that they deserved when they got back. And so being able to share his story and those that he was involved with around is a true honor for all of us. So thank you so much for sharing your dad's story, being a part of it and your family as well. I say we get into it and let's get this done, right? It's, it's, I'm excited to see what happens in yeah, the final absolutely. episode. Right. Yeah, me as well. All right. Thank you. Thank you. With the wood and made charcoal out of it. So everybody cooked off that charcoal, including we had drying huts about the size of this. They'd make charcoal and they'd just cover the whole floor with charcoal. And uh, just have it going all the time. Yeah, and they, then they take our clothing and there's no electricity or dryers. They take our clothing and hang it on bamboo poles down there over the fire and that's how they glow. Because it's a rainy season, I mean. You want dry clothes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the house where they dry them. The problem is that, that charcoal off-gassed the, the, pirate, the uh, psychogenic, uh, and it got into our clothing and the, according to the VA and the uh, FDA and the CDC, my portal of entry was my uh, uh, lymph system. So that's how I ended up getting the Agent Orange. But we thought it was great, you know, and we never realized, you know, what it did. I've since been back there. The area that I was in was a, um, there was two districts, Quanswin and Kanjo. And now Quanswin is gone as, a, as far as an, a, nom- you know, a named entity. It's not all Kanjo. But on the southern end of Kanjo now, they have a huge, uh, a reforestation project and a huge uh, um, laboratory uh, studying the effects and the the um, mitigating of the uh, the effects of yeah. Agent Orange. So, did you just 
suspect that it was causing problems in 71? I don't or really suspect it. never even thought about it. When but you some, were taking the RAND folks? Yeah. Well, they did. Uh, somebody did, but we never thought about it, you know. Uh, you know, we were just very, uh, oh, okay, good. The trees are gone. Gives the bad guys less area to hide in, you know. Makes I mean, work. this was when the government used to spray DEET yeah. on people in the United yeah. States, so. And DEET was good, too. I mean, it got the bugs going, and bugs, it gets bugs mm -hmm. is driving nuts. I mean, I was in Mississippi once, and I was happy for it, the yeah. DEET truck to come by, even though I knew. Well, when we, were, when so. we lived in Cuba, Karen and I lived in Cuba, they used to have Smokey Joe would go through all the areas every day and, you know, here comes Smokey and they'd smoke up the whole area and, you know, all the bugs. Mm -hmm. I actually do want to move on to talking about Guantanamo at your time there. Um, do you have any questions about Vietnam that I missed? No. No? I'm just Sitting back? more respect for you every day because <laughs> I got shot in the butt too, so we have to stay in <laughs> um. Magnet ass. <laughs> So, so what years were you stationed in Guantanamo? Uh, Karen and I left Vietnam in '73. The other in '77. Okay. Um, got down there. I was E6. We checked in. You know, this is not my area. Yeah. So the personal officer got a job for Eagles. You know, he's a personal officer. And I'm an E6. Yes, sir. He says, you're going to go to base police shore patrol. I said, okay, so shore patrol, I'll be a medical guy. It means I'll go down to shore patrol and be the medical guy, take care of the sailors that get beat up or drunk or fall in the water, you know. Well, I got down there and said, oh, no, 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 you're going to have a heart at. And I'm a, going back to 0845, there's a Navy regulation that says medics can't do this, this, or that, you know, and that's one of them. You can't wear a heart hat. Uh, you can't be a patrolman. You're supposed to, you know, you're supposed to be nonviolent. Non-combatant, you know. Mm -hmm. So this whole chief says, "Bullshit." He says, "You're you put that your hard hat." So they gave me a stick and a hard hat and a brassard, and for about three weeks I rode the buses, and uh, they would bring the, the ships into Guantanamo. And there's a place called Mile Square, and they had a an EM club up there, and they'd take them out there and they'd play baseball and anything else, and then they get drunk and they put them back on the boat. Buses. So this was an R and R spot for folks. Or? No, it, well. It was a training area, and I mean, it was an intense training area. I mean, all kinds of ships were in there, and they do training, uh, uh, refresher training, you know, uh, amphibious, uh, not amphibious, uh, ASW, anti-submarine warfare. Anti warfare, all that stuff. They do that, and then when, of course they, they they anchor in the bay and they let them all go ashore and have some fun and go back to the ship next day and go out and train. And my job was to get them from the, ship, the, the the fleet landing up to the club and back, and if they're drunk, put them on the bus and, and uh, fight your way out and off the bus. So I did this for about three weeks, and, you know, okay. I mean, Donald, you were what, what rank were you, Don? Uh, Lieutenant Commander. Oh, well, you know, if he told you, you had to do what you were doing, you know. But I was a good month after, after uh, So I did that, and then uh, one day the... Uh, the she says hey, the admiral wants to see you. The admiral named Ralph Gormley, and you know, admiral, I'm an E6, and he's up there. So I went off to his office. Says, "What are you doing there?" I said, "Sir, the personal officer sent me." He says, "Oh, I called. I have you done or something else." 
Yes, sir. You know, you're standing there, you know. Uh, I didn't hang around with generals too much. I mean, I was here. He was a very nice man. He said, but I got a job for you. He said, you're going to build me, run me a veterinary clinic. Because I had animal experience. I learned how to tranquilize elephants. I learned how to You do... learned that in Vietnam or yeah. in one of your medical no, courses? No, no. In the medical course with special forces, you learn how to work on people that work on dogs. Don't tell Peta, but that's what you did. And then uh, because I was going out there the second time, they sent me up to Cornell University to learn about, learn about pigs and chickens. And then because we had elephants, they sent me, I went to San Diego Zoo, zoo and learned how to tranquilize elephants. They could air, airlift them. So that's my experience. So he says, you're the new vet. Well, they had an old, uh, doc, beautiful old man, Dr. Barnes, old Jamaican, black Jamaican Cuban. And he was way beyond his prime, and he was running it. And he says, you got to take the dock and fix it up, you know. Yes, sir, you know. So he said, whatever you need, you got it. So I went down to the old corral where Doc had his place, and he had a place probably about as long as this, about a third of the width. That was his vet clinic, and it was a mess, you know. And he did a lot of, uh, I won't say he's a witch doctor, but you know, he was Jamaican, Cuban. And uh, got in there, and he was real nice, you know, and, but you know, a young pup, and he was, he was in the 80s. And the first day the Admiral's wife comes in there and got after him about cleaning the place up. He's down there now. And Mrs. Grohl is real nice, but she was the Admiral's wife, you know. Okay. So Doc got mad at her. And I'm going to tell you, I mean, I'm a quote here. He says, God damn it, woman, go get a rag and fuck a sea turtle. Oh, holy shit. And I'm sorry. And she left. I mean, my heart is, oh my God. Yeah. So about half an hour later, the phone rings. Uh, Doc, it's for you. Petty officer says, Admiral what happened? I said, well, your wife got out here and got after Doc about cleaning up. Okay. Then what happened? I said, well, they got mad. What did he say? I'd rather not say, sir. He says, damn it, Doc, what did he say? So I told him, you know. And I mean, I'm telling you, I mean, I, don't, I, mean, I wouldn't tell that to him. You know, and he's a lieutenant commander, this is an admiral. And he said, okay, what does it mean? I said, I don't know. Well, ask, Doc, what does it mean? He said, well, before you do it, you got to wipe his ass. That was why I get a rag. So she never came back again. We said, you got to get that place cleaned up. So, but he knew a lot. He, really, he was a brilliant old man. And think about it, he was a black, very black Jamaican Cuban. In the 30s, he got an honorary degree from Cornell University. He wrote papers about animal um, acclimatization, about bringing animals in out of the states. And back then in Cuba, they'd bring racehorses and cattle. He was really a knowledgeable old man, but crusty. So I worked for him a while, and uh, he uh, he was, and then he was taking rum for fees, you know, mm. and his wife was. He had, he had come over and not gone back. He, he was a, a transit through the gate. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that gate. So the, my understanding is that if folks came through that gate and they went back, if they didn't come back the next day, they couldn't come back. Yeah. Can you tell me about that? There's a, uh, it's called Guacamara Hill. The, the, uh, the, the Cubans would walk up to the hill. There's a house here. They take all their clothes off, walk across this courtyard, there was a guy sitting there about where Karen was, and they, he would search them, and then they'd go on and put clothes on and come down the, the chute into our base. Doc got tired one day and didn't go back. So his wife, Addie, and the kids and everything, was, they left out there. 
So he stayed on base. You know, this is long before I got there. Uh, and then for years he worked to get Addie out, and he did. Uh, she had to go from, I think she went through there to Spain, and then they came back down to Cuba. But, uh, I mean, he taught me how to smell heartworm. You know, I'd, I'd be out there doing all these tests, he'd say, Mom, she got the heartworm on. You know, uh, believe me. Uh, I'd be out there testing the horses for uh, worms. He'd say, oh, Mom, you don't be doing that stupid shit, man. He'd put your hand in it. And he'd smell it. He'd say, she got the bot, Mom. And, and he was right. I mean, his was herbalistic. Uh, one of the funniest things, uh, he, he, like I say, he was an old time, he was an honorary doctor, but he knew a lot. And he would go out in the, the woods around Guantanamo, the fields. He'd pick up stuff and he had a mortar and pestle. And he'd beat it up and then uh, he'd say, Thomas, I need some tins of petrolatum or a tin of petrolatum. And I'd go out to the hospital, get him a little tin, and he'd say, I need 10 of them. So I'd get him 10 and he'd say, okay, take six here, put this stuff in there, mix it up. He'd take four over here and he says, get me a turd. So I'd get him a show of the turd and he'd put it in there and mix it in there with other stuff. I'd say, Doc, he said, oh, the bastards pissed me off. They'd, he'd send him stuff in charge, but he'd put he put horse shit in there. And every morning he'd be sitting out there drinking, and ah, the dumb boss would be rubbing shit in their head now, Tommy. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's hilarious. But, but he knew so much. I mean, uh, but in the end, he just got too old, and then we finally got a real vet. Done. So I baked the cake, and we got a real Air Force vet to come in there and uh, put the icing on it. Mm -hmm. And Doc stayed there, and I'm, he died a few years later. But he got his wife and kids out of... Uh, uh, the communist Cuba. And there was a lot of that going on there. You know, a lot of the Cubans just stayed on base. There was a uh, a place uh, on the edge of the base called YKW, you know where. And, the, and there's a, at that time, the largest minefields in the world surrounded the base of Cuba. And every night, somebody would try to get through that. And you had all combinations. Mom and dad made it. Five kids didn't. Grandma didn't. You know, he's right anyway. And we had all these people on base. They were escaping from Cuba. And yeah. what what happened to them? They get hurt in the minefields. You know, they step on a mine. Uh, and then we, the guys, they had a thing called minefield maintenance rescue, and the Marines would go in there, get the bodies or whoever's alive out of there. How did Marines feel about that duty? EOD, they're EOD, explosive war. These are guys that they, I won't say they liked them, but they, they wanted it. That was what they did, and they were very proud of it. They didn't like, you know, people getting killed, and they didn't like picking up bodies. But, you know, there's, they saved some of them who didn't know that. When I was there, they, they, the Cubans were actually shooting through the fence. Oh, yeah. And they, they would shoot at us as we were landing. Yeah. So we'd have to come in very hot. Yeah. Yeah, full power. Well, Carol and I were one out in a barrel boat out near the Watergate. You know, there's two bays. A barrel boat was a local. The guys made these boats, and you go out there and fish it. So we're out in the boat, and uh, all of a sudden we were zing. And I said, what's that? It was nighttime. And we had a Coleman lantern up there, and the guy said, and I said, bullshit. I said, I he said it was flying fish. And I said, they're shooting at us. And we heaved the uh, lantern out and got away. But yeah, they would shoot us. I mean, nobody—I don't think everybody got hurt on a barrel boat. I don't know about planes if they ever hit one, but 
I never heard about. I'm sure they did, but I never heard about anybody getting hurt. Well, I, well they were shooting. What they were shooting at us was just wouldn't hurt us anyway. But we still had to come in hot or high. Yeah. And pull power. Pretty hairy. Yeah. It's not nice to be in friendly territory and get shot at. You you had your second son You're at cute. Guantanamo. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He, he, he thought he was Cuban. No, man, you're American. Don't worry. You just tell me I'm Cuban. No, you're, you're born as you're American. Um, so was it difficult to... I heard that it was a really close community, like the neighborhood oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Guantanamo. What was it like living there? It was good for Karen and I. It was our, you know, we just got married. Uh, it was hard, but it was, you, know, you couldn't run away to mommy or daddy, you know. Either one of us, you were there. See, I mean, we got it probably helped our marriage a lot. Um, PX is, you know, by every couple of weeks, a ship would come in and they'd be up and down with stuff. Um, what do you want to say about Cuba? You're good. Thank you so much. Can it go anywhere? Mm -hmm. We went to Haiti a couple of times for. Uh, was that a vacation our, spot? Yeah. yeah. Um, we we went over twice to Haiti. Hmm? We went twice to Haiti, didn't we? Yeah. They would, what they had was the uh, the the air station had a four engine aircraft. I can't even name it. You know, a big four engine transport at Guantanamo. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, we had a big four engine aircraft. They were. No, we had those, but the, the station had, the Navy station had a, it wasn't a Constellation, it was a, a passenger, you know, it was a passenger aircraft. There were a couple of super there. Yeah, and they would fly over, they would fly over in the morning, take people from the base, Karen and I. P3. Yeah. And they'd fly over there and they'd pick up the embassy people, bring them back to go shopping and go to the hospital for dental or uh, So you'd go over for the day. And then when they brought the embassy people back in the afternoon, late afternoon, they'd pick you up and bring you back. So we, we did that twice. The first time I went over there, um, the Admiral called me and I said, Doc, you got to go to Haiti. Wow, this is cool, man. You know, he said, we're going to fly a 400 aircraft. You know, me, I'm E-6. That's the big stuff. So I, then I had a tackle box full of medical supplies. The ambassador's dog is sick. So I thought, wow, I'm somebody. So I flew off to... Uh, Haiti, they met me at the uh, airport in Port-au-Prince. They took me up to the ambassador's house, and he had this uh, Weimaraner. And uh, I was, wow, you know. The only thing wrong with the Weimaraner is he used anal glands expressed. And he had an infection. So, uh, so I, I trained a Marine over there to be corporal of the anal glands, how to express the anal glands. Because he was a dog, the ambassador rightfully so kept him in the compound. But he could smell the other dogs, the girl dogs around, and he was just sitting there, and he got an infection. And so I flew off to Haiti to uh, take care of the interglanes of the dog. <laughs> My eagle went down. <laughs> <laughs> a reality check, I guess. Um, is there anything else you wanted to tell me about Guantanamo? Um... Like you say, it was a tight-knit community. Um, everybody knew everybody. Uh, there wasn't a lot to do. I mean, either you know you worked. Uh, 
then they had all kinds of hobbies down there. Uh, woodworking shop. Caring Bear got much into ceramics. Uh, he saved some money. Uh, well, let's not say this. So, uh, I, I, when I got care of the States, good wife. Got down there, great wife. Uh, I bought her a cookbook, you know. And I uh, said, so, you know, so one day she, I, came, I worked at the clinic, I came home for lunch because it wasn't far. So uh, she's cooking me pork chops. And they got on fire, and she ran out of the house, and the door got locked. So the, the oven's on fire. So my neighbor, who's a CB, came down, broke the door down, got in, put the fire out. And his wife came over and said, what are you doing? She said, I was cooking pork chops. Okay. What's this in the sink? And it was steak for the supper. She said, well, what is all this, you know? And my Dolce Vita went right down the tubes because he said, oh, no, no. He makes his own breakfast. Canned ham or something, or salami for, for lunch, he'd make a sandwich. I had her cooking me three delicious meals a day, and we are going broke. She said, oh, no, no. If he's good, you cook, uh, breakfast he can make his own, lunch he can make a sandwich. Supper you cooking, we had all three cooking meals. I mean, she had bacon and eggs. We had workshops. So uh, I said, no more of that. So then we started saving money. Said, no more La Dolce Vita. So my, my good life went right down the road. <laughs> so she learned that one. That's what I can remember. Um, let's see. So in 1985, y'all started... Uh, wait, yeah. Okay, so in 1985, you moved 19 of your relative of Karen's relatives yeah. to the States? Um, not all at once, but uh, Vietnam fell. It's about a, how many, when did we get the first? 1983, Kathy and David fell. But when was the first, no. When was the first letter we got, though? Okay, so Vietnam's home. She hadn't heard from her a long time. Uh, we went to a, uh, we're, we're Catholic, went to a uh, couple's retreat. I'm sitting in the basement, and uh, she's just learned how, she just became Catholic. You know? And this, I'm, I'm sitting under this register, and I hear this father tell her, who was upstairs, all the guys are down and looking at this guy's basement. And he says, there's a Karen here. Here's a holy card. Say this novena, whatever you want, you're going to get. I said, oh, shit, that's bullshit. You know, because I knew what you were going to pray for, and it weren't going to happen. So I go, hold on, and she says, what's this? And I explain it to her. So she got a statue of uh, Mother Teresa, St. Teresa. And she's saying this, not praying to the statue, but to remind her. And for a week she's praying, and the more she prayed, the matter I got. You know, Because I knew what she was praying for, and it weren't going to happen. The last day of the novena, she got a letter first letter since, so, well, we had to be 75. So four years she got her first letter. It was a horrible letter. So the family is uh, in the shits. They're not communists. Uh, some of the family has gone in jail. They're here, they're there. Uh, we want to get out. So I said, who do you want? She said, I want them all. I was E6. six. And I said, you know, what do we do? So uh, we started, people found out about We started raising the money and making the, uh, Noise through the embassies, and we did all things. We got on TV, radio. What do you mean making the noise? TV papers, media. Uh, if they did something good, we got in the papers. If they did something bad, we got in the papers. 
you know, the TV crew was kind of found. It's called what's called 19 to Freedom. Uh, she I mean she even got word from the White House they're coming. They didn't come. I mean, it was, it was, she still believing. I'm not believing. I really. Uh, so like she said, her sister and her son came first. Lon came in what year? 1953. And then the rest of the family came. And they not all came at once, and we finally got almost all of them out. So um, they came when we lived in Fredericksburg, Virginia. But all the people, all my friends and family were up in Buffalo, New York, or actually New Fame. So we got them out, and they uh, started the American dream, you know, get a credit card, get debt, do this, do good, do bad. And they're all here except one. Does that answer it? Or you yeah. You have a question. You were out of country when it fell, right? Oh, yeah. How'd you feel? Cried. Me too. You know, when you think about all the people that died, I mean, I thought all the work we did, if you want to say a four letter word, tell Karen Kissinger. I mean, he sold the country down. I, mean, I was there, I mean, they were coming into the villages when I left the village, legally. When we got to the airplane at Tonsonute, when Karen and I got, uh, because we were, uh, we we, caught, we didn't get to Freedom Bird, we got a Herky Bird from Da Nang up to uh, uh, Okinawa. But at that, and we, when we boarded that bird, there was an NVA officer going motor, which is one, two, three, count us. You know, it wasn't, well, it was, you know, and we were told don't say a word, you know, we, uh, we all went, you know, take that guy and beat his ass. Uh, you have a lot of nightmare about that. Now sometimes you still have nightmares. Well, you cry, I cried for days. I mean, you think about all the people that died, you know, and they just throw it out. And the Vietnamese, I mean, they took it in the shorts too, I and mean, they really did. Uh, I mean, a lot of our good friends died. Uh, I mean, some really good Vietnamese, good Vietnamese, fighting Vietnamese, they put them in camps. I mean, they took over. Um, the North Vietnamese conquered. They didn't liberate. They they conquered. When Karen and I went back in uh, 08, the, uh, yeah. Went back. Oh, yeah, we went back. The <coughs> uh, the the people, the North Vietnamese were in charge. The, the, the Viet Cong, uh, Madame Nguyen Thi Binh, who was a female negotiator at, at uh, Paris, and that, they put her in jail. I mean, the, the Viet Cong had no, now they're just starting to make them a honored citizen in Vietnam. I mean, for a long time, you know, we're here. Uh, the the commanding officer, Don Ten, which is our enemy, the battalion commander, he's been just been um, honored, heroized, or what I say. Uh, one of the nurses that was down on the room set, the Viet Cong nurses, She's finally come out, and now she's an honored woman. But that was how many years later? Um, Is there anything else you thought I would ask you about? Well, I'm trying to answer that again. I think you did great. I'm good. Thank you for your service. Thank oh, you so sweet. much, sir. Thank you for what you're doing. F4 driver. <laughs> I had to do something to stay off the ground. Yeah. You guys had the ground.